0: Well, I'm thankful for this opportunity to uh, address the General Assembly on an important topic, prayer as a means of grace. This morning as we're going over time, I'm sitting over here on the side waiting and looking at my cell phone to see what time it was. Lost five minutes and I was down to 50 minutes. Lost another five and I was down to 45 and I'm thinking, okay, what material can I go over and still be comprehensive and unto the edification of the believers and then it was 40 minutes and then 35 we were getting close to half an hour and I figured out what I was going to do and it came to me and all I needed was about two minutes but it's like the last two minutes of a Saturday NFL playoff game where there are stoppages in play timeouts Injuries, real and faked. Uh, TV timeouts in the law, so that uh, the two minutes ends up taking about an hour. So I'm glad for our brother's suggestion to uh, change it to this time uh, to give time, because there really is a lot here. My brother leaned over to me this morning, told me I had the easiest presentation. But there is a lot in the scriptures to consider. But I have a disclaimer. I figured by the time we got to prayer that the biblical and theological justification for the means of grace as a phrase or as a technical term would have already been mentioned at least once and defined for us. It seems, however, that some have forgotten the definition that was laid down at the start So the two parts to the definition that makes something a means of grace were, as Jim said, dominical institution, and I like that because they're instituted by the Lord with the expectation of blessing. Now, I want to illustrate something that I hadn't planned to, so I may end up going over a little bit. You know how people sometimes call the church and they ask you a series of questions to pre-screen to see if they want to come or not? Well, when people ask me, how long do you preach? I answer until I'm done. I teach at a state university in our city, and I teach, among other things, world civilization from 1492 to 1914, and as part of that, we cover the Reformation, and it's a blessing to stand before a class of unbelievers and to explain to them the theological justification for the Reformation as being the attempt to recover the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. And they look at me like this. They're very courteous and they take it in and they give me back on the test exactly what I said. And of course, I'm going to test them on that material to see if they understood it. But there have been times around Reformation Sunday, especially, where I've used that same material in the adult Sunday school class at Heritage. In the expectation I have at Heritage to those who are believers, is that God by His Spirit is going to use that material, even though it's historical, and tied to many passages of Scripture to show the theology of the Reformation as a blessing to His people and unto their edification? The same material in the context of the secular university, I have no expectation of blessing. Same words, same material, more or less. But in one, it's a means of grace. To those who are the Lord's people, and to the others, because they have no faith, they are deaf to the spiritual realities, the beautiful spiritual realities that I've tried to put before them in a winsome way that they might understand what it was all about. And the typical response is this, you're not Catholic, are you? So just to illustrate what we mean about the means of grace, something that is commanded by the Lord especially with the expectation of blessing. I'm frozen here. It's not a good day for... uh, Here we go. I think there are two metaphors that are helpful when we consider prayer in the means of grace. The first is that it's a blanket that wraps around the other means of grace. It is always there. It is in and around. Many of you have come up to me, especially today, and said, I'm praying for you. right? Praying for me as I stand to preach about prayer. But your prayers for me, though privately offered, are still a means of grace, a private means of grace. That God may own and use the material here for the blessing of others. And know my consideration of this and putting it together has been a tremendous blessing to me. And the other metaphor, the first is that it's a blanket. The second is that it's the glue that binds the means of grace together. So it's a blanket that wraps in the glue that binds Prayer is an old grace. You know what the first recorded prayer we have in the scriptures is? Or the first time that prayer is mentioned specifically? It's in Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, where Abimelech has taken Abraham's wife. In verses 6 through 8, we're told about this. And in verse 7... God says in a dream to Abimelech, Now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. It's not introduced and defined, but it's assumed to be something that's already present in the religious life of the patriarchs. And it's not a big thing. It's just mentioned by God in the dream to Abimelech that this is what Abraham is going to do. And then later in verse 17, it's reported. So Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants. Then they bore children. It is not telling us what he prayed, but that he prayed is what's important. He interceded for another. That they might. Receive undeserved benefits. Abraham knew it was what he needed to do. He had no doubt about that. It was part of the life as he sought to live in faithfulness to God. So prayer defined in its most general terms is simply this. Speaking to God. then what is the first prayer? If that's the first time prayer is mentioned, is there a previous narrative that tells us what the first prayer was? And for this information, I stand on the shoulders of Greg Beale and his work on the temple. In Genesis chapter 2, we have the record of how chaos came into the pristine perfection of the cosmos that God had pronounced good And God is going about his business in the garden, communicating his will to Adam to do this and to do this and to do this. And the text implies some interaction between God and man. And have you ever considered Adam's first recorded words? Chapter 2, verse 23, we find, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. This is an ejaculatory declaration of realization. To whom was it made? It's not addressed to Eve. But it's stated to express something about her to another. And you know the narrative. There aren't a whole lot of choices, are there? He's not speaking in elephant and he's not speaking in tiger or lion. He's speaking in some language that someone else is going to understand. Could it be that he said this to the Lord because of the realization of God's promise? What God had said came to pass. This is where the confession calls prayer a part of natural religion. Prayer is a part of natural religion even before the fall of man. Adam's sin marred the intimacy of fellowship with God through prayer. And all false religions from that time on are attempts to communicate or to placate the idols fashioned in man's minds according to their own image. From various forms of theism through polytheism, To all of the ancient mythologies. Their attempts to find favor by communicating in some way with their gods. It's only the God of the scriptures that makes man in his own image with the ability to communicate with each other and with himself. So you see, the origin of this means is very ancient. It's an old means. It's the oldest of the means. It was set in place within the very being of human beings. We were made to have fellowship with our Creator, and it is expressed through the means of communicating with Him. Prayer in what Beal would call the first temple, the Garden of Eden. But the fall changed everything, did it not? These are important things to remember because when we come to the new covenant, we don't pray just because Jesus set a good example in praying before he distributed the elements on that first Lord's Supper when he changed the Passover forever. We pray to express ourselves to our God at this time because of the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ who in spite of the fall and in spite of our sin has opened up the way for us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So part of the blessings and benefits that come to us from the righteous life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ is this open access to God. But not God as merely a God, but God as our Father. Father. To whom we come on the most tenderest of terms. He opened up the way. We pray not just because it's his example, but because it has always been the right thing to do since the creation of the world. Isn't that a wonderful thought to consider? It's always intended to be taken In its superlative form, that word always, it has always been the right thing to do. Since the creation, God has ordained the prayers of those who are his image. We don't have any more time to look at that whole idea further, but there's so much more to consider. So one of the questions comes up when you talk about the means of grace is, well, is this as it is mentioned in the confession, a public or private means of grace. And one of the problems is defining how widely or narrowly we will understand prayer in this age. And the argument often goes, since preaching is public and the ordinances are public, and times of fasting and thanksgiving, as they are mentioned in the confession, seem to be public, that the prayer... That is mentioned as a means of grace must also be public prayer. Yet private prayer is also commanded and there's an expectation that prayer rightly offered whether public or private will be blessed. So I think prayer is both a public and a private means and there seems to be some vagueness in what we have. But on the other hand, preaching was never intended to be private. Personally, in our own meditative life, we call it meditation. Meditation has been defined preaching to oneself, the wonderful truths and applications of God's word. With one or two, or a few more, it's often been called exhortation. The ordinances were not intended to be private, Days of fasting and thanksgiving, calling the church together for those things are not private, though private fasting is allowed as we afflict the soul for spiritual good. And though giving thanks is something all men are called to do, it can be done publicly as well as privately, and it's expressed to God by prayer. So I think prayer is best understood in it's intent to be both public and private. Paul made some of his private prayers public, either in the words or in the content of them. In Ephesians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1. The Gospels as regards Jesus records for us some of his prayers. And I find it an interesting note that Even though the disciples fell asleep three times in Gethsemane, someone from among them had to be paying attention because we have his prayer recorded in John 17. What a wonderful thing it is. So even if you disagree with me on some of these things up to this point, for the sake of Christian love and for the work's sake, please indulge me in the rest of these matters. I'm not convinced... Prayer needs to be one or the other, because prayer is unique. Prayer is both public and private, and it fits the definition of the means of grace. Both are of dominical institution. Both have the expectation of blessing and are the means to edify others. Both should be unto the glory of God. In just knowing, some of you were praying for me. And one of you is praying for me as I'm preaching, he told me, is a blessing to me and unto my edification. So you see how all of these things, though apparently complex, all fit together wonderfully to give us this full orb theology of prayer, but prayer as a means of grace. Let's look a little further. We pray sometimes before and almost always after the preaching of the word before that it would be effective and afterwards that it would be effective that the Lord would bless it own it use it in the hearers we pray for the bread and the fruit of the vine that we might truly feed on the Lord in our inner man and perhaps afterwards we thank the Lord for his sacrifice and for opening up that way of blessing to us in the cup and in the bread. Fasting and prayer are intimately linked together. Repentance is often coupled with fasting and it is expressed through prayer. Thanksgiving is offered through prayer. Prayer is so fundamental to the life of the faithful as it was intended in natural religion to be an act of each and every human being it's the nearly automatic response of the redeemed soul prayer is linked with all the means of grace they can hardly be separated private prayer precedes public prayer we ought to be prepared when we step into the pulpit to address God's people It's either Dabney or Alexander. It talks about uh, public prayer at the end of the book and even that public prayer should be practiced for pulpit eloquence. The heart of the one praying ought to be right with God as one stands to represent others. In many ways, the way the heart of the prayer gets right with God is by praying to God in faith, seeking repentance, Giving thanksgiving, crying out for strength. So there's so much to this. Prayer is linked to just about everything. A uh, brother mentioned Dr. Gerstner this morning. It was a great privilege to know him. I worked at Ligonier while I was at seminary in Orlando, and on a number of occasions I uh, uh, spent a great deal of time with Dr. Gerstner. Uh, the first time was while he was in the hospital bed passing a kidney stone. And on morphine, when he told me that when he woke up in heaven, he expected to be a Reformed Baptist. I thought that was great. (laughs) He was invited to come to Ligonier to give a devotional. And and Dr. Gerstner comes across as being very gruff. And and when he, he speaks, he doesn't really speak, he growls. And he was asked to speak on the topic of prayer as a Christian grace. And basically, his talk went like this. Christians... Pray. If you don't pray, you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're going to hell. So let me tell you what hell is like. And he went on to speak evangelistically to the staff at Ligonier Ministries. But you see, prayer is that important. It's a spiritual barometer in many ways of how deeply we are affected in our inner man. And how the Spirit is at work in us, provoking us to do what ought to be the nearly automatic response of the redeemed soul, to pray. I told someone I was going to rename this talk. It's much easier to explain than to do. Carl F.H. Henry, for many years the dean of American evangelical theologians, taught it. RTS, and it was a great privilege to be his teaching assistant. I had to spend about 10 or 12 hours a day with Dr. Henry while he was in town, and I didn't mind at all. Ligonier paid me for doing it, and uh, it it was just great. Well, there was a man who was the pastor of probably what was the only mega church in New England at that time who fell. And while I was with uh, Dr. Henry, he took a call that told him about this very prominent man, And the first thing he said when he got off the phone, still rings in my ears. He said he neglected personal prayer. I don't know who he was talking about. I didn't know what he was talking about. But I think this is an incredible insight. Because the man had been careless with his own soul through prayerlessness. So that he wasn't equipped to fight the temptations of life that came. And he knew it had to do with the personal means of grace when this man had fallen. You see, prayer is an important grace, but not the most foundational. If it were not for the preaching of the word of God, we would not understand the importance of prayer. So the ancients had prayer. It was a natural part of Adam's desire to communicate with his creator there in the garden. But since the fall, we're marred. We're self-centered. We seek after other things. Unless God gets our attention and works in us by his spirit to exercise the means that he has given. So my thesis to prove, you say to yourself, oh no, he's still in his introduction. Is this. To be confessional is to be prayerful. It's that simple. To be confessional, as confessional Reformed Baptists, is to be prayerful. To not be prayerful, and notice the end of that word full, is to work against the confession. But I would also argue to work against the confession in these matters is to work against the scriptures, the revelation that God has given. For our confession is but a summary of those things surely believed among us, but not a summary of everything. So I hope you see how large a subject this really is. And I have to limit my remarks as provoked by our common confession. But if you need a text, my diving board is the diving board from which I want to jump off today is found in Matthew 6, 9. As the disciples of the Lord were called and as they made that last cut, as he selected the 12 that were going to be traveling with him nearly full time to instruct them, to pour his very life into them that they may continue on. Starting as his disciples who then eventually would come become the apostles who would be prominent in planting churches and the associates of and the, the associates of the apostles and the apostles would be used to give us the New Testament scriptures. So to those twelve early in their corporate life with him as his church if Matthew 16 and 18 mean anything, are these words. In this manner, therefore, pray. Jesus tells those who made the cut to pray. There is a manner in which we as his disciples ought to pray. Not in a set form as it's given for vain repetitions, but the content of these things, the petitions that are here, give us the general categories in which we ought to pray. And there is a means by which we know we shall be heard. Prayer. And a means by which we know we will be blessed by prayer. 1 John 5.14 tells us, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We need to be aware of the guidelines. According to his will, as it comes from that Lord's Prayer, is important. We don't pray in order to change God's mind. Yet he uses prayer as a means to accomplish his holy will. He has ordained the means as well as the end, using the prayers of the saints to accomplish that will. In my finiteness, I can't fully wrap my mind around what that means. But I know that God uses the prayers of the saints To accomplish his will. So we pray. Your will be done. At the beginning of Jesus's ministry to the 12, they needed to be taught how to pray. But also near the end of Jesus's ministries, the disciples come to him and ask him to pray. They see that he was praying Luke 11, starting in verse one. Well, verse one. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They saw him. They saw his examples. There are times where we know they heard his words. And they look at him and they see themselves and they realize that they don't know how to engage in communicating with God. So even though they had been taught some years earlier, they come back to Jesus and seeing him want to know how to pray. So Jesus takes the initiative to teach them at the beginning. And they take the initiative because they need to learn more at the end. You remember who these are. These are the disciples who have been with Jesus full time. In the book of Acts, remember they're standing there and it's, said of them these are those who were with jesus what a blessing it might have been i'd rather sit under the ministry of jesus than sit under my own ministry any day what a delight it must have been but we need a dose of humility to admit that we don't pray as we ought either i don't know how many times i've taught, talked to my brother pastors including some of you about how difficult it can be to pray. The tyranny of the urgent, there's always something to do that gets our attention. I've got to read my blogs today. I've got to check in on my friends on Facebook. I've got to answer my email. There's always something that can take us away. Something that has a greater sense of urgency, or at least we have assigned urgency to it. Perhaps our lack of self-control that gives way to distractions all around us. I mean, those things that I mentioned earlier are great as breaks during those things that need to be done. All kinds of distractions keep us from this means of grace privately. And as we are kept from this means of grace privately, it will affect our ability to pray publicly unless we stand as hypocrites before God's people. The one thing that scares me most in all of the ministry is praying publicly before people. Stonewall Jackson had a problem with that. When he was a lieutenant, his pastor, Presbyterian pastor, preached a sermon on how the men needed to pray. And he found himself stumbling all over himself when he did this. But he knew it was his duty and as a soldier he knew what duty meant. He went to his pastor and he said, call on me that I might learn to pray. There may be men even here who for one reason or another haven't prayed for days, for weeks, or months, for one reason or another. I talked to a friend of mine in New England. The second week of March and he told me it had been years since he had prayed quietly to God so what I want to do is survey the confession to show how prayer is used to give us our doctrine and practice of the same to present a summary of the theology of prayer as a means of grace the starting point we've heard in every message so far is at 14.1. And I'll just draw your attention to that, where it says uh, about the means of grace and defines them as the preaching of the word, the administration of the baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God. It is increased in strength, and that is the grace of faith in the elect. Prayer, is a means of grace to spiritual ends. It's not to tell God things he already knows. And it's not to preach another sermon before God's people when we are done in order that somehow we can manipulate their minds and reinforce things again. But it's communicating with God about those things that are important to him. And I would argue the petitions of the Lord's Prayer are a wonderful place to start. Seven of them focus us spiritually towards God, and only one is about the stuff that we need. Wonderful God-centered praying. The means is God-ordained. It's instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ for the good of His church. As they exercise the habits that come from the grace that gives faith. The Lord uses prayer to accomplish His will that can't be emphasized enough. When we have an answer to prayer, aren't we greatly encouraged? Well, sure we are. But what do we do? We get lazy again and don't storm the throne of heaven when we know God is pleased to hear our prayers and to answer them according to His will. We expect God to hear and to bless and sometimes He does in extraordinary ways. And as Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Your will be done, so too we must have a spirit of submission to God's will whenever we pray. And I think that's one of the reasons why people slow down in how much they pray or what they pray because God has answered in a way that's different what they wanted and they start to get this view that God is contrary or God is even against them in Psalm 130 the psalmist cries out to God because he has gone into the depths he has gone into the pits but it's not God who's moved it's the psalmist who has gone there Again, we don't pray trying to change God's mind somehow. We pray God willing. And we seek to submit to him. We pray in line with his revealed will. We pray according to what he has said, giving us gospel expectations of what he will do. And we pray that he would give us hearts and minds To submit to his decretive will, that it will come to pass and be our delight as he subdues our wants and needs according to his providence and his provision. So, prayer is a means of grace to spiritual ends, the means is God ordained. And the Lord uses prayer to accomplish his will. How? Well, we pray your kingdom come. And we apply that in all sorts of ways. We can pray your kingdom come and pray about the lives of the people we seek to shepherd. That it would come in their lives in very different ways. That someone might understand a particular doctrine they have found hard. That someone might be a better husband to his wife. Or a wife to be more submissive and supportive of her husband. Those are ways in which the kingdom of God comes in tangible ways. And those are ways in which we can take these categories from the petitions of the Lord's Prayer.
1: And enliven our
0: own prayer life for our people. Rather than just getting out the list. Oh Lord, I pray for the Smiths again today that you would bless them. And for the Jones and for the Johnsons and... You know how it can devolve into that sort of formal praying. Sure, we've done our duty, but we've done it to our own conscience to solve it, rather than to the God of glory and grace above. We pray for God's kingdom to come to save sinners, to disciple believers, And even that he might use these things to glorify himself. Prayer is used along with the ordinary means of preaching to accomplish these ends. Never on its own. Though God is sometimes pleased to respond to our prayers in extraordinary ways. But we don't expect the extraordinary. We take it when it comes and it's full of glory. But our expectation ought to be that he would use the ordinary means among his people. Prayer should never eclipse the preaching of the word, their best friends. Preaching should be wrapped in prayer, and we know about the efficacy of praying because of the preaching. If you have the confession open, flip over to 15.3. In this paragraph, we have of repentance unto life and salvation. A wonderful statement here. It says, The saving repentances and evangelical grace, whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, does by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow detestation of it in self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all, well-pleasing in all things. Great paragraph, is it not? Because you see, prayer is one of the first religious acts upon the receipt of faith, being born anew by the Spirit of God. Why prayer? Because the renewed heart can't do anything else but pray. When we understand the enormity of our sin in the greatness of the forgiving grace of God in Christ, we cry out to Him. Faith is not something given because of what we did or because of something we deserve it is all of grace and always undeserved by the recipient. The gift was given, the recipient responds. Is this not a means whereby the blessings of God are appropriated by men? We're reminded in Ezekiel 36:31 of these words, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. God shows us our sin in our need of a Savior, in our need to be forgiven by that Savior. So when He opens our eyes and unclogs our our ears and brings us to life, we turn to Him in prayer away from ourselves, our sin, our own idolatry to God in His undeserved grace in Christ. Realizing that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He does that throughout our Christian life as we keep short accounts with him through prayer. But he does that at the beginning of our Christian life as well. See, there is no easy believism. When we confess, we agree with God about the sinfulness of our sin. Forgive us our sins. It's another one of those petitions we find in that model prayer. But when we pray that in our closets, we pray that for ourselves, as well as our church, our association, For all the Reformed and Evangelical churches, we need to own their sins that are our own as well. And may the God of grace grant repentance. We should long to be forgiven. And therefore, we cry out to God for pardon. Not as Luther did in his incredible introspection but with a delight that God is going to let our sins go. He's going to loosen them from us. He is going to choose to not recall them anymore and remove them from us as far as the east is from the west. This is the grace we have. But how is it appropriated? Through the private means of grace. Private prayer. Prayer is one of the first religious acts upon the receipt of faith ordinarily through the preaching of the word. We are humbled by the word to see the offense of our sin and turn to God in Christ by prayer in repentance, seeking his forgiveness and thankful for the grace that he gave that we don't deserve. Prayer is a wonderful thing, is it not? Well, let's look at corporate church life. Shouldn't surprise us in 22 3 when we find the sentiments that are expressed. That the congregation mirrors the spiritual concern for gathered corporate prayer is unamazing. It is supraordinary, as prayer ought to be in the life of those who are his own. There's a pattern in Acts that we find a church. Uh, The church realizes there's a need. The need arises to replace Judas. That Peter is in prison. The church gathers together. And what do they do? Someone sets the context. And they pray. It's one of the most foundational practices. That came to define that early church. In Acts 2.38. One of the things they gave themselves to. Was the prayers. It's the last in the list of four. But Something they gave themselves over to. It characterized their common life and perhaps their private lives as well. In Acts, they didn't need a devotion before they prayed. The context of the need was set and they prayed. The context may be set in our day with the reading of the word and then praying in accord with the sentiments of the passage. Could this not instruct us how to conduct ourselves in prayer meetings the confession directs us the public prayer in worship 22 3 prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship I've already talked about natural worship and where that comes from and what that was is by God required of all men But that it may be accepted is to be made in the name of the son by the help of the spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love and perseverance. And when with others in a known tongue, it's a universal indictment of all mankind because they were unthankful. We get that sentiment in Romans 1, 20 and 21, where it says, For the creation of the world, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Right? They didn't practice the natural religion. Because of the fall. the effects of the fall. But Paul goes on to say, nor were thankful. A universal indictment. Because they weren't thankful. They took the good, common grace that God gave to all men, giving them air to breathe, giving them life, providing food for them, giving them rain. But they weren't thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, in their foolish hearts we darkened. We must teach by our words an example to be a thankful people. Even from the pulpit as we pray, remembering to give thanks to God. In everything, give thanks. We must model a prayer life before our people that sets an example for those we serve. It's interesting, is it not, that thankfulness is also a means. But it's a means to show their true state or of their just judgment. In contrast, we're told in the confession what is acceptable prayer. It's not just any prayer, but that it may be accepted. It is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will. I've often been asked questions as to whether God hears the prayers of the unrighteous or not. And I answer, of course he does. We have examples in scripture where he does. But God is not under any obligation to act on their prayers. But he does promise his blessing if they are rightly offered. He may hear their prayers. And their prayers may be in accord with his will. But God is not obligated to take them up and act upon them in our land where civil religion, along with political correctness, invites, quote unquote, all faiths to come to the civic events in order to pray. We must not forget that the one true and living God obligates himself to hear and to act on prayers that are offered in faith in the name of the son aided by the spirit in accord with his will to not pray in the authority that's represented by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to give in. To pray some amorphous prayer that could make anybody happy or even anybody inspired would be wrong for us to do. And every year I get a letter from our city council that comes and invites me to come and open up one of their sessions with prayer. And they have a series of qualifiers down at the bottom and the one thing they don't want you to do is to pray specifically in Jesus' name. I don't even reply. It would be great, wouldn't it, to be there before a city council meeting and to be on local cable TV and to have some eloquent practiced prayer to pray before them. Maybe some people will come to our church. It isn't worth it if I have to compromise offering prayer The right way. It's a simple proposition, but public prestige can be a temptation to give in just a little. Oh no! I think I really dipped this time. is where I break out in a sweat. You get the picture, though. See, I didn't print these out because I knew I was going to have to amend this and change this after other people took my thunder. Sorry about this. But my two minutes aren't up yet. There are times in our praying that set forms of prayer can help. Um, have a, one of our deacons who was given a copy of Valley of Vision. And when he wakes up in the morning, he likes to take the book off of his bedside table and read the next prayer. And he'll read it and then he prays it. And he's found that that sort of sets a context for him for the day. It gets him off on the right foot with his mind on the right things. There are times even in public that set prayers are appropriate. I know you don't find them very much in the Reformed Baptist tradition, but it's something that is a possibility that to use. There are, there are some that are just wonderful that are there. Because it's so different than what our people know It may cause some of the immature to stumble, and perhaps we should teach them before just introducing these sorts of things. But the prayers have wonderful sentiments of the word, especially the Psalms, even to read the Psalter, or if you know the tune, to sing the Psalms to yourself. I advocate something that's called directed prayer in line with the forms that are given in Scripture. And an example of that might be to take those petitions of the Lord's Prayer and to pray through them, uh, even for yourself or for your family, that the Father's name would be hallowed among you, that you would honor him and hold him in high regard, that his kingdom would come in your lives, that you would be a leader of your house, not just making the decisions about the affairs of the household, but being a leader, a spiritual leader of the good things for your family that we would learn to submit to God's will in all things, even the particular decisions that might be before you the day that you pray. To ask the Lord to provide everything that you need for your family. In the ancient world, you had to go out and get your daily bread and and haul your water every day, and they knew what it was to pray this each and every day. But we've become a bit softer with our refrigerators and multiple freezers and running water and all of that. But we still should ask God to provide and thank him when he does. To pray for ourselves and our family that God might forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. After college and seminary, I liked the version of the Lord's Prayer that used debts but now I prefer transgressions. Not that I prefer transgressions, but I prefer using the word transgressions. just want to make that clear. And one that we should always be sensitive to and pray for ourselves in the ministry because our fall or our sins ruins not only our own reputation, but it brings reproach to Christ that he wouldn't allow us to even be led into temptation. And that he would deliver us from evil. Especially the evil one. And that we would remember it's all about him. As we pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. you see how the, the categories of the Lord's Prayer, just quickly considered, can open up in a, in new vistas to us when we pray? You can even do that as part of the public prayer, directing it, asking someone if one of the men could stand and pray that we would hallow the name of God and then pause and let them stand and let them pray as the public means of gathered corporate prayer to focus our attention that we may pray according to God's will. Because these petitions, brothers and sisters, are the will of God to be prayed. That is acceptable prayer. Uh, It's what I call directed prayer. Prayer becomes a habit. It's spiritual communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's personal, it's corporate. We have meetings for the purpose of praying. We pray during times of worship. And in chapter 22, paragraph 4, we're told that prayer is to be made for things lawful for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter for other generations that will come after us. But not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. In 22.6 says neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. As in private families, daily, and in secret, each one by himself. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God, by his word or providence, calls thereto. So you see, I'm not the only one who links all of these ways of praying together. The confession does it as well. There may be times for us when it is better for those we love in the Lord for us to be praying in our closets than even visiting them in the hospital or their homes. Now, I didn't say that we shouldn't go and visit. I said there may be times when it's better. You get that call that someone has been brought to the emergency room and the first thing you want to do is put on your coat and go and meet them in the ER in order to pray for them. But at that moment may be their most critical moment of need. And the critical spiritual need of that moment is to pray for them even before you go. Pray for them when you get there. But pray. The Lord at times can answer prayer very quickly. We were with a bunch of young people one time at the Delaware Water Gap playing around some of the streams that were there and there's a large pool of water and one group of young people were getting a bit rowdy and exposing parts of their body that they shouldn't be and a number of us saw this and privately we all prayed in a matter of seconds these people just left and went off somewhere else that God owned our concern protected those who are under our care took up our prayer And answered it in a moment. One of the men who saw this came to me and said, Wow, that's surprising. I said, what's surprising? He said, I just prayed that the Lord would take care of this situation. And he did. And I looked at him in the eyes and I said, you shouldn't be surprised. God is pleased to act. Sometimes he does quickly. Sometimes he says, wait a while. But it's, thy will be done. Because he knows what's best. We're also told in the chapter of the, on the civil magistrate in 24.3 that we ought to make supplications and prayers for kings and all that are in authority that under them we may live a quiet and peaceable life in our godliness and honesty, mirroring the language that we find there in 1 Timothy 2.1-2. You know, king there is a word that represents those who are in power in the lands, uh, even in in democratic republics and it is a good and godly thing for us to pray for those in charge even if we disagree with their politics when we pray for those who are over us in our nation we shouldn't pray imprecations but we should pray for our good In God's glory that we may live a quiet and peaceable life. Does not quiet entail not agitating in the political sphere. I'll step off that soapbox before I stay on it at all. And peaceable in all godliness and honesty. We pray when we ordain offices in the church, we find in 26. Nine, that they are set apart by prayer in the like imposition of the hands and solemnly set apart by fasting in prayer for the eldership. So elders and deacons are put into their office or put into their place ordained with prayer. 2610, the work of pastors being constantly to attend the service of Christ in his churches in the ministry of the word in prayer with watching for their souls you know, the great secret of the ministry that we never talk about when we get together as pastors, and that's that we only work one day a week. Right? Well, that's what some people think. My daughter works in a sandwich shop, and one of the guys said to her, well, what does your father do the rest of the week? And she said, "Uh, put sermons together and praise and does other things. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. But the real secret is we only work half days. We just don't know which 12 hours it's going to be. But the real secret is that we're only called to do two things. We speak to men as the mouthpiece of God when we preach. And we speak to God on behalf of men when we intercede for them. Basically, those are the two most fundamental things we are called to do. And we know that God uses it as a means to accomplish His will in both cases. But we let so many things get in the way of our praying. We must preach, and everything Tom said, amen. But we must also pray. Even when we have an idea of what's going to happen, we pray. I've been teaching through the plagues in Egypt. They're incredible. I'm enjoying teaching about the plagues. They must say something about me. At the end of the fourth plague, Moses told Pharaoh that the plague would stop the next day. Saying this, knowing this, he still prayed. That it would come to pass. In 830 it says, So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The Lord answered his prayer. So we pray for ourselves, for our families, for our people, for our pastor friends, for other churches. As we're instructed in the confession in 26.14. It's been used to show other things today, but in the first part of this it says, as each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. So we pray for one another. But when we pray, it shouldn't be a little bit here and a little bit there. We should apply the principle of pray without ceasing to ourselves and our ministry of prayer as well. When I was at Oxford for one term, there was a man we called Polish Andrew. Andrew loved basketball and he liked talking to me. He was trying to build up his vocabulary and grammar in order to take English as a second language test so he could get into PhD studies. And he would talk to me all the time about all sorts of things. And he was all set to take this test and the essay asked him to contrast the words continually and continuously and explain how they would be used in English and he looked at that question and tears came into his eyes because it was too fine a distinction for him to make so he wrote and he explained that And he came to me and he sought me out at the dinner meal and and, and he sat and there were tears in his eyes because he thought he was going to have to wait another year and take this test again, that he wasn't going to be able to get into the program he wanted and there was a slot that he was accepted for and, and all of this, his world was going to collapse. And I said to Andrew, Andrew, don't worry. They knew you were going to have difficulty with that nuance. They just wanted to see how you'd be able to express yourself. And he got in. But you see, something that is continuous is something that keeps on going and never stops. Something that's continually is something that goes on, but it has intervals. And to pray without ceasing is to pray in that way, to pray ready to pray, to be in a spirit of prayer, not that you're always praying all the time, but that you're always ready to pray when things come to mind. And I've tried to train myself to pray by association, have a man with a large family at our church that drives for FedEx. So when I see a FedEx truck, I try to pray for him, for his wife, for his 11 children, for the older ones who have been in college and trying to find jobs and one who's been, who is now engaged in, in uh, uh, you know, just so many things that they represent. And I can go on driving for, for 10 minutes or more praying for him and his family because they represent so much more. But we also have a man that works for Otis Elevator. And when I'm in an elevator, if I'm not talking to someone or with someone else, I try to pray for Fred and for his family. It's the association I have. And I've tried to find these things when I drive by a hospital for those involved involved in health care, the post office for a dear woman who's had great difficulties these past years. But also pastor friends. And you can do this. If for some reason Jack Daniels comes to mind, (laughs) pray for Jack Daniels and his wife, the church in Limerick, Jack's assistant who's helping them and still coming to understand more and more of the Reformed faith and all that they represent there in somewhat rural Maine. And pray for Jonathan Marshall, who came to many of our GAs, that they've sent out to another church now to seek to influence them. There's so much to do. Say you're driving through a city somewhere and you see Blackburn Avenue. What do you do? Well, there's two things you can do. You can pray for Earl or you can pray for everybody else who knows Earl. (laughs) But you see how that works. I think we can discipline ourselves to have these kinds of associations in our mind that we might pray more and more. According to that directive to pray without ceasing and pray the heavenly father will give the strength to do what he has commanded as a means of grace. If you find it hard to pray, set aside some time in the morning, in the afternoon, before you settle into other things and give yourself to pray. If only for an hour, cultivate the habit. If you're lying in bed, not waking up or not getting to sleep or passing kidney stones. Pray. Use the Lord's Prayer as a guide for yourself, for your family and your people. Use reminders in the world to pray continually and pray for spiritual blessings rather than physical well-being and material stuff. You know, it's okay to pray for for physical well-being. The Apostle Paul prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be removed. And then he stopped asking for that and he said, God's grace is sufficient. So it's okay to pray for those things, but they shouldn't have the first place in our minds and in our hearts. We're called to watch and pray. There's only one more thing in the confession that I want to draw your attention to. And it's in chapter 8, verse 4, where there's an important statement for our purposes. The chapter is of Christ the Mediator. And we're reminded of this important reality. And there sitteth at the right hand of his Father making intercession. For who? For me and you. The risen Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven continues to pray for us. He still works for us as he prays. He prays for each one of us. He knows us more thoroughly than we know ourselves. And he prays for all of us. And he prays for all of us regularly. Without any need of gimmicks to remind himself. As he prays continuously for all the saints. If that could be expressed audibly. What a blessed chatter it would be. there were two young men who came to faith in Netley, England. And they were called before the elders of the church to be questioned for baptism and church membership. And the old, one of the old men who was an elder asked these men if they believed in the finished work of Christ. And both of them shook their heads. No, sir, we don't. No, sir, I don't. And the uh, elders didn't quite know what to do. So they asked the young men why they didn't believe in the finished work of Christ. And they said, he's still in heaven at God's right hand, praying for me. The Lord of glory lavishes his love on us in part by praying for us, by praying perfectly for us we follow his example as we pray for others because we love them as he has loved us. Then as their pastors, we can say, imitate me as I follow the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of these glorious realities. Give us thankful hearts and prayerful lives that we might serve your people through this means of grace, that we might encourage and edify your people as we pray publicly, and that we might give ourselves privately for their good, even if they never realize what we do in our closets and studies. Oh, help us to avail ourselves of this means of grace in public and in private. We pray for your glory's sake, that your glory would be known in the churches of your own dear son. Work in us first and then in our people. We pray these things in his blessed name. Amen.